This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. Governments gone too far in imposing lockdowns to curb the spread of COVID-19. Why did governments use this strategy? We speak to Brian Pottinger, South African author of the new book, States of Panic, COVID-19 and the New Medieval. And we hear from our partners at Bloomberg about the new response to COVID-19 by US President Joe Biden, starting with his appointment of Rochelle Walensky to head the country's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. First, the Inside COVID-19 news making world headlines. About 44,000 people have died and about 1.5 million people have tested positive for COVID-19 in South Africa. That's according to government statistics. More than 102 million people have been confirmed as having the disease worldwide and more than 2.2 million people have died of the disease. That's according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre. Nearly 450,000 people have died of COVID-19 in the United States, but the rate of spread does seem to be slowing there slightly. In Brazil, the number of cases is still rising. Johns Hopkins data analysis suggests that South Africa is well past the peak of its second wave. Business owners and citizens have slammed the government for maintaining lockdown measures, including a ban on liquor sales, warning that the measures are hammering the economy. Cuba will make travellers quarantine under a new set of restrictions announced on Saturday after coronavirus cases surged this month in the Caribbean's largest island. Tourists, business people and foreign diplomats are among those who will be forced to isolate at their own expense in government-approved hotels upon arriving. Billionaire Carlos Slim returned to his home in Mexico City after being hospitalised for COVID-19, a family member has said. Slim is recovering and recuperating well, his son-in-law and spokesman Arturo Elias Ayub said in a message on Saturday. Latin America's richest man, who turned 81 this week, was hospitalized in Mexico City's Instituto Nacional de Nutrición, where he was experiencing mild symptoms. The number of deaths in California has breached the 40,000 mark. The state recorded more than 14,000 deaths in January alone. Meanwhile, the first two U.S. cases of the South African variant were found in South Carolina on January the 28th. Governor Larry Hogan says that the variant is believed to be more transmissible but hasn't been shown to cause more serious illness or risk of death compared with other variants. Students in UK secondary schools may be sent COVID-19 testing kits at home prior to a planned return to classrooms in March. That's according to the Telegraph newspaper. The government may abandon plans to conduct lateral flow testing at schools in favour of the home testing. The kits are already being used by primary school teachers and may eventually be rolled out for younger children, according to the report. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has issued a public health order requiring the wearing of masks by all travelers into, within or out of the U.S. This will take effect from February the 2nd. The order applies to airlines, ships, ferries, trains, subways, buses, taxis and rideshares, as well as transportation hubs such as airports and seaports. The UK reported more than 23,000 new cases on Saturday, which is more than 3,500 fewer than the average of the previous seven days and 30% lower than a week ago. But another 1,200 people died within 28 days of a positive test. More than 8.37 million people in Britain have received their first vaccine. 
Pakistan will receive as much as 17 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine under the COVAX arrangement by the end of the second quarter of this year. That's according to the nation's planning minister, Assad Umar. A European dispute over the supply of COVID-19 vaccines is threatening to unleash a wider political and economic conflict that could stymie global collaboration needed to end the pandemic. After accusing UK vaccine maker AstraZeneca of favouring deliveries to its home country, the EU announced a drastic plan to control exports of COVID shots. The retaliatory move may encourage more governments to use economic might or other means to protect their interests. The bloc is under pressure to speed up an immunisation campaign that's trailing those in Britain and the US, says Bloomberg. Emerging virus variants are forcing drug makers to develop booster shots for a disease that could remain active for years. Vaccines made by Moderna and Pfizer are already in use. Meanwhile, studies show those from Johnson & Johnson and Novavax pack a punch against early forms of the virus, potentially paving the way for quick authorizations in the U.S., for J&J's vaccine and in the UK for Novavax's shot. But there is some bad news. Mutations that likely confer partial resistance to vaccines and antibody treatments are now prevalent in both South Africa and Brazil, warns Bloomberg, and they are threatening to spread worldwide. The J&J shot was found in a late-stage trial to be 72% effective in the US, but that fell to 57% in studies done in South Africa. Novavax's shot, 89% effective in the UK, was only 49% effective in South Africa. Professor Shabir Mahdi, Executive Director of the Vaccines and Infectious Diseases Analytics Research Unit at WITS and Principal Investigator in the Novavax COVID-19 vaccine trial in South Africa, is quoted as saying that the higher efficacy of the vaccine in the UK compared to South Africa is because the variants circulating in South Africa are less sensitive to vaccine-induced immune responses. Nevertheless, the 60% reduced risk against COVID-19 illness in vaccinated individuals in South Africans underscores the value of this vaccine to prevent illness from the highly worrisome variant currently circulating in South Africa, he says. The Novavax vaccine is the only COVID-19 vaccine for which we now have objective evidence that it protects against the variant dominating in South Africa, he says. The number of UK-listed companies at risk of insolvency has doubled as restrictions aimed at curbing the spread of the coronavirus continue to ravage the economy. Bloomberg reports that a record 35% of UK companies issued profit warnings last year, according to a report by the consulting firm EY. There was also a surge in the number of companies issuing three or more profit warnings in a 12-month period. This is a warning sign for insolvency. Many UK companies have been treading on thin ice for months with government support propping them up, says Alan Hudson, restructuring leader for UK and Ireland at EY. While there is speculation these measures could be extended until the summer, the countdown has started, and in weeks or months we'll find out how many companies can keep their head above water, he says. The UK is back under severe lockdown restrictions following a spike in coronavirus cases in December. The government has so far committed almost £300 billion in emergency support for the economy, but now faces pressures to extend the furlough scheme after figures showing unemployment rising to the highest since 2016. Retail has been one of the hardest-hit sectors as visits to shops plunge with office workers staying home and the government advising consumers to avoid non-essential trips. Companies with a good online presence and the ability to adapt quickly have performed better, says EY. Manufacturing PMI reports from countries across Asia are set to show the state of recovery in a region that has been boosted recently by spillovers from China's strength. An official gauge of China's manufacturing output published on Sunday slipped for a second month in January, though it does remain comfortably in expansion territory. 
India's budget will be announced this week with a spending binge likely as the government tries to chart a way out of the pandemic-induced slump. The central bank meets on Friday. Coming up, we speak to Brian Pottinger, former editor and publisher of the Sunday Times, about his new book, States of Panic, COVID-19 and the New Medieval. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News and with me is Brian Pottinger, the former editor of the Sunday Times and an author of at least eight books. Brian, your latest one is States of Panic, COVID-19 and the New Medieval. Tell us about what motivated you to write this book. Jackie, I had no intention of writing a book about COVID-19 at all. As I say in the book, I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an actuary. But I am an old-style journalistic hack. And when I see a lot of information coming through, which is untested, which is challengeable, which needs to be investigated and isn't, then, I don't know, the old warhorse instincts come out and say, hey, let's have a look at this. And when you lock down for five weeks, I mean, what better thing to investigate than COVID-19, which is what I did. The more I investigated, the more I became concerned about the orthodox narrative. And not concerned about the reality of COVID-19, it existed. Not concerned about the virulence of COVID-19 as it affects elderly and infirm people. But I was concerned about the kind of output from the scientific community. Uh, and particularly the epidemiologists, the sort of what they call the scientific academic clique. And I became worried about some of that stuff. I mean, I know I'm, I'm not the only one, and there's some superb work that's been done by people like Panda and so on, who right from the beginning were saying, hold on, this, this kind of doesn't stack up. And I was writing as early as May, publishing articles saying, it doesn't stack up, the numbers don't stack up. And, and into it, the more I got into it, I became aware that there were a number of uh, interests were at stake here, not conspiracies, but interests. And it was an attempt to understand those that I sat down and wrote the book. Yet these epidemiologists and mathematicians are all very clever people when it comes to numbers, and they would probably argue that journalists can't possibly know as much as they do about statistics. So quite an area for you to dip into. What is your statistical background? No, no statistical background at all. The only argument I make, and I make it right in the front of the book, is when I get challenged on the basis of who are you to write a book on this very complex issue is is quite simply I, I I have a brain I can read I can analyze data and I can think and I can ask questions and that's the only thing you really need to do you don't have to go into the deep and technical issues of this to understand some of the core issues which are at stake here and when people may say your numbers don't look right or your calculations are wrong or your analysis is wrong my response to some of them not all of them but to those who came out initially and said half a million British people will be dead in within, by April last year, my argument to them is, who are you to talk to me about the quality of your statistics? Who are you to talk to me about the quality of your statistics? Um, the book is out there. The arguments are there. The history is there. I rely extensively on the internal documentation from World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control their internal documentation as to how they were going to handle this pandemic, how they were going to record it, how they were going to register it, how they were going to manage it. So it's not made out of air. It's just good reporting. And what has your research found about the World Health Organization? Perhaps we can just take a step back. In your book, you start off by looking at the swine flu and perhaps vested interests with the pharmaceutical industry and the, the current treatment of 
COVID-19 and the advice from the World Health Organization seems to resonate with what was happening then. Perhaps you could just take us a step back there and just set out what you noticed that nobody else yeah. noticed. Well, this was one of the interesting parts of, of the exercise is that I stumbled into swine flu. You know, the book deals with some of the earlier, it goes right back to, to the Black Death, it deals with um, MERS uh, and the original SARS outbreak. And so I was just researching uh, swine flu. Now, I know and I remember and I experienced swine flu living in the UK, the near hysteria that accompanied that, uh, the, the selling of Tamiflu, the NHS call centres. I was running a business then and staff were disappearing off for days because they had this dread disease which was going to kill us all. And at the end of the day, when it was all over, the research showed, and there was legitimate and reputable research, that this thing was no worse than an ordinary flu. And yet we've gone into total panic mode. And that panic mode has been driven by the World Health Organization and CDC. In fact, some of the individuals in the CDC who were driving it then are the ones driving COVID-19. And so that started bringing all sorts of parallels into, into, into mind. And one of the interesting things was this... Um, uh, the research that was done, the report that was done by the then European Parliament and the Social Welfare and Families Committee produced a report in the form of a draft resolution. If you read through that, and it's published in detail in the book uh, and in the extract, it is a chilling foretaste of what actually happened in COVID-19. The same uh, almost hysterical response to COVID-19, the reaching way beyond scientific fact, the driving of things rapidly to a level six, a pandemic stage, the uh, continuing um, pr providing a very alarmist analysis, and then everything just fell apart. The vaccine side, I've just noted it because I'm very cautious not to go beyond what I can establish. And I can't establish any specific link between COVID-19, WHO, CDC, and the pharmaceutical industries. I have no proof of any of that. So I don't make any allegations. I just find it interesting that that was an issue that came up and was considered important enough by a committee of the European Parliament to look at. Do you think that governments have overreacted hugely to this problem by locking everybody down? I fear. I fear so. I fear they overreacted. I fear they acted on uh, incorrect information. And I think they reacted as a response to a driving momentum of events. It created a momentum which put enormous pressure on governments to make public policy decisions. It was being fed by the so-called bad news coming out of China, which in fact I believe was misinterpreted as to what was happening. The, the, the tragedy of Bergamo in Italy, which I would argue was a very, very unique set of circumstances. Then your scientific academic uh, epidemiologists and the other people arriving for their slice of the cake, and this is it, we're all going to die. And what happens is that under that pressure, not surprisingly, politicians go for the zero-risk option. That's what they learn in Politics 101, the zero-risk option. Zero-risk option, close everybody down. And that also feeds into the interests of the public health authorities who have, if anything, proved themselves um, to have been unprepared for this. And in order to deal with it, you had to lock everybody down. So there was a kind of combination of players and factors which led to a complete overstatement of, overassessment of the risk. No malice here, no criminality, nothing of that sort. 
just a complete misjudgment with catastrophic consequences. What concerns me is that having made that, having taken this epochal decision to close the world down, you have to stick with that. You have to stick with that logic of your your original decision. And what followed, and the book tracks this very carefully, is this continuing process of um, uh, adjustment of numbers. I'm trying to avoid the word manipulation of numbers. Adjustment of numbers, reaching out for new definitions, changing definitions, um, reinterpreting phylogenetic realities in order to justify the original position. And that's the real issue that, that concerns me. I do have to say here before you know, people start jumping up and down, the exceptions that I make, uh, if, if you're talking about the rogues gallery, the exceptions I make are the frontline clinical staff, the, clinic, the, the people who had to deal with this unknown virus at the, at the, at the work face. You know, I have nothing but respect for them. So the book is in no way a criticism of their efforts and what they did. Uh, it is a criticism further up the line. The administrative health, public health organizations, these major institutions, unaccountable institutions with enormous influence and therefore power, which is the second part of the book, which you know needn't delay us now, but it's, it's the fundamental question. How did we end up in this situation? Well, my argument is that developed world societies have this now embedded neuroses, this fear neuroses, driven by major institutions whose, if you want to, their business model is fear. That's how they survive. And that's how we ended up. It was a a perfect storm of of events. So do you have a view on how serious COVID-19 is? Do you think it's a serious illness? Do you think it's just as bad as a flu? Have we all overreacted horribly and shut the world down? Should we all be back at work. My personal assessment, and I, and I did some analysis in the book, start with a, a view that there's an average infection fatality rate, IFR, of around 0.2, which makes it a very serious viral outbreak, uh, equal to the serious decadal outbreaks we had with Hong Kong flu uh, in, in 68 and, and uh, Asian flu in 57. But probably no more than that. Guess what? We survived both those pandemics without closing the world down. So it was serious, and it was particularly serious for elderly and infirm people. So I, I don't dispute the necessity for containment measures. That should have been the first objective, the elderly. And in some cases it, it was, but it was, it was implemented very badly. 40% of the deaths in the UK, as you know, were in care homes. Something went wrong there. So it was serious, uh, and I'm not a, have any objection to masks and sanitizing and limited gatherings of people. I don't object to that. I think that's an intelligent response to a serious decadal viral outburst. What I do object to is the closure of economies, of countries, of borders. I don't believe there was any need for that. And the second key point of, of, of debate, and this leads us into the Swedish model, I believe absolutely that um, that the Swedish model is correct. The more you lock down a coronavirus, the more you ensure second, third, and even fourth iterations, which are even worse. Because, um, as Anders Technol said, you wear down the system, you exhaust the system. And in South Africa, I believe we're seeing the tragic consequences now of new viruses coming through some of them which have traces of SARS-CoV-2, but are not 
COVID-19. They have no phylogenetic connection at all. They are serious annual coronaviruses which are coming through and hitting an exhausted population. Uh, you probably know the statistics in South Africa, this massive drop-off in people who are no longer coming to collect their medication for HIV, AIDS, for malaria, and for TB. That's 10 months of not picking up your medication. You know what state you're in when this comes along. We're not even talking about the, the, the rising levels of malnutrition. It's by no chance that Eastern Cape, which is the poorest region in the country, has suffered the highest fatality rates. Now, that is not a consequence of the COVID-19 virus. The original Wuhan virus died in Europe in June of last year. It died. It's not the consequences of the virus. It's the consequences of the actions taken by humans in response to the virus. And so there's where my concern is. Uh, if we keep locking up and locking up and locking up, what do we do? You know, where does the virus eventually go? Can I just check with you? You said the virus actually died in June, yet we're, mm. we're told by governments there's a new variant, but there is still this other original variant. Where's the evidence that it's gone? Well, the, yeah, yeah. If you, can I read something? Yes, to please you? do. Yes. In, uh, on December the 31st, on New Year's Eve, the World Health Organization put out a, a, a disease outbreak news. They, they observe that um, over a period of several months, the D614G mutation, which is a mutation in, in nucleotides and various other, um, replaced the initial SARS-CoV-2 strain identified in China and by June 2020, became the dominant form of the virus circulating globally. So essentially, that went away. So then we had these new strains coming out. And in the UK, as we, as we know, SARS-CoV-2 VOC 2012-01, or variant of concern, year 20. This variant contains 23 nucleotide substitutes, which is a very big genetic change and is not phylogenetically related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus circulating in the United Kingdom at the time the variant was detected. How and where this SARS-CoV-2 VOC comes from is unclear. So there's actually no connection, according to the World Health Organization, phylogenetically, in other words, in terms of lineage, between what's locked up Britain the second time and what locked up Britain the first time. So what's going to lock up Britain the third time and the fourth time? You know, that is the issue. And what about South Africa? What about the variant there? Is this also a completely new disease? No, it's a little bit more complicated now. And despite my most humongous efforts to get somebody to give me a straight, a straight answer, I'm finding it very difficult. Um, but in South Africa, it is a different variant of SARS-CoV-2, not of COVID-19. That's generally accepted. But the reporting is of such an appallingly bad quality that often gets confused. So it is a SARS variant we're talking about. And there was a, originally a little concern about how, how virulent it was. Uh, it seemed to be the argument was was no more virulent than COVID-19, but spread faster, which it would because it's an ordinary coronavirus. COVID-19 spread by cluster infections. This spreads like an ordinary coronavirus, like an ordinary flu. So it will affect more people, and then theoretically we'll have more deaths. 
I think it's quite serious, and it's certainly claiming a lot of elderly people and people with respiratory problems. So we, we shouldn't underestimate the challenges we face and the need to be disciplined and safe about the way we go forward. But, again, there is no clear indication of the phylogenetic relationships between COVID-19. My, my, my view of it is, as a complete outsider who can't get a straight answer from anyone, is that uh, it's the new coronaviruses would come through. Some are not related at all to COVID-19. Others have traces of COVID-19 in it. They have some COVID-19 lineage. Not unusual. Swine flu was a reassortant uh, virus which had four different elements. One of them, scarily, was avian flu, which had a phenomenal uh, case fatality rate of over 60%. So nobody at that stage called swine flu a variant of avian flu that would have just caused a panic of extraordinary proportions. But we're very cavalierly saying all coronaviruses are COVID-19. And that was established back in 2020, by the way, the World Health Organization and CDC started registering. Their documentation that's in the books is categorically, there is no other coronavirus except COVID-19. If you put coronavirus down as a cause of death, we're going to change it to COVID-19. It's in their documentation. So, so, so I'm saying we're dealing with so many elements here. Uh, and it's been done um, through the way this has been reported and managed. I think it's going to take us years to unravel who actually died of COVID-19, who with it, who died of something else. Um, and, and that's a big challenge going forward. There's another challenge, of course, I won't even go into, which is about the vaccinations. Have we prepared these vaccinations for a virus or a strain that is essentially expired? And how effective will they be with new strains? And there's a lot of debate going on at the moment about that. I don't understand the technicality, so I won't express a view on it. I'm simply saying it's an issue which we need to be aware of. And Brian, you've written your book not to make money, clearly. You've written it because you feel quite strongly about this and you want some sort of outcome or you want to hold powerful people to account. Can you just elaborate on what, what the underlying objective would be for you or what what would you like to see come out of uh, people reading your book? What kind of response are you hoping for? I think in a very general sense, I, I think the first response I'd like people to be a little more critical uh, about what they get told and what they hear. It's always been to me a remarkable fact that highly trained and, uh, and respected journalists will not accept a word from the mouth of a politician in a three-piece suit. But if that person, man or woman, is in a white doctor's coat or speaks in the name of science, they'll fall on their knees and go, Hosanna, Hosanna. So I think we need to be critical about the expert classes because I don't think uh, they're all expert at all and I think common sense needs to be brought to bear and they need to be held accountable and there should be judgment about what they say. We shouldn't just accept it. This isn't to dispute that there are, of course, very fine scientists who are correct in what they say. The COVID-19 debate even reflects that. There is no unanimity of views among scientists. You can see there are huge dissident views in the scientific community about the nature and the course of this thing. So there are different views, and I think the public needs to be, the public needs to be aware of that, and I hope the book will, will, will bring that to light. But the second point, and you, you spoke about accountability, this is an issue that concerns me deeply. Um, we have a right to expect people to be accountable. Lawyers are accountable. 
doctors are accountable, you know, clinical people are, architects are, they all bound by their own internal rules and by the civil law, civil and criminal law. Yet somehow you can kind of bring a world economy to its knees with your dawdlings and say it's science and there's no accountability for it. How does that work? Now, I can make all sorts of suggestions about international inquiries. There is a World Health Organization inquiry which has been appointed to go into the conduct uh, and management of the pandemic. I've read the terms of reference and all it seems geared to do is to backslap everybody who's been involved. I'm going to request permission to make a submission to that inquiry on exactly this point, the accountability of organizations, institutions and individuals for what they say. Uh, and that's a, you know, as you say, I, I didn't write this book to make money. Uh, I wrote it for a broader purpose. And I unfortunately have the means to pursue that purpose, which I certainly intend to do. Because I am. I'm angry. I'm outraged. And what would you like to see happening in South Africa specifically? You, you know, if you could suggest some concrete steps, what would those be? I think the concrete steps now, I don't think the lockdowns are helping. I really don't. I, I have no objection to the face masks, to sanitising into groups. I, th I think that's fine. But I think we have to let this country open up and breathe. I think that an economy which is destroyed does not create a, a, a society or a people who are capable in the first instance to physically um, engage and combat viral infections. But secondly, they're not in a position to continue to engage in a rational way with government about the means to control it. So I think that we need to have a huge, huge rethink. And I think particularly the institutions here involved in this need to state categorically, what are we looking for vaccinations for? For COVID-19 or for another virus? Where is COVID-19 at the moment in this story? Are you happy with the way that these deaths are being registered? I have to tell you, I was very impressed the way South Africa did it up to the end of our coronavirus series. The numbers fell far short of expectation. I think the numbers were right because the government was following very, very severe clinical methods. Uh, and I think that they were, they were to be recommended for what they did. The numbers were right. What I'm concerned about now is that all coronaviruses are being hauled under the COVID-19 umbrella and we're getting a distortion of the reality. I think we may have another coronavirus equally as severe. Its severity now being impounded by the consequences of our lockdowns in the first round. And we're not addressing that specifically. We're becoming diverted by the COVID-19 noise. That's a big concern for me. Have you engaged with any of the scientists in South Africa? I've been in contact uh, with the National Institute of Disease Control here been in lots of correspondence, a lot of correspondence with the World Health Organization, with the Office for National Statistics in uh, the UK. I've read exhaustively on all the reports that have come out, including the, the parliamentary uh, SAGE and SAGE minutes of all their meetings. And I've read a lot of the reports that have been tabled, produced by various institutions as to the progress of this disease and its nature. So I'm pretty confident that the questions I raise are valid. There may be errors of, and misinterpretations and misunderstandings. I'm perfectly happy to accept that.
And I would be happy for people to challenge that. In fact, I'd be really happy if those who feel strongly enough about it would write, write their own book. Uh, but uh, as, what, as the content as it stands at the moment is the result of a lot of very hard, very, in my view, analytical research. And just to be absolutely uh, clear, your research shows that the original COVID-19 from Wuhan is no longer with the world. It's no longer certainly with Europe. It died out okay. then. If you understand what the World Health Organization is saying, is it died out subsequently. Now, clearly, it, viruses re- reform themselves all the time. They come in with different shapes and represent themselves in different forms. As I said, a bit like politicians, actors, virologists, and epidemiologists. They come back in different forms. Mm. So uh, no virus completely disappears. The original SARS virus is still around in various forms and shapes. So COVID-19 exists certainly as a SARS, a variation somewhere in the world. It's lineages or forming part of the lineages of existing coronaviruses. I'm saying insufficient rigor has been established to say what is new, what is part COVID-19, and what is the original Wuhan infection that locked us all up with great scare and panic. If you look at the nomenclature, it's quite interesting. Now, there's a great caution about simply saying COVID-19. It's now COVID-19 linked. Right. Just about anything. If you look at the documentation that comes out continuously, particularly from the the respectable institutions, they are referring to coronaviruses. They're even referring to new and novel coronaviruses. So, and and some of these are actually raising the question about what, what vaccination do we actually have here? What's it intended to vaccinate? These are very, very reputable people in their field not just a, a retired old hack like me. These questions are being raised. So to come back to your original point, is COVID-19 dead? No, of course it's not. It, they don't just die out like that. They're around. But I feel that we're gravely misdirecting ourselves because there is still, I don't know how you want to call it, you may want to call it an emotional, a political, a professional uh, attachment to the view of a COVID-19 banner or brand. And, and that, could be, that could be dangerous. It could become very dangerous if it becomes entrenched because it takes our focus off what may be other and, and more important battles in terms of, of viral outbreaks. We have to get over this. That's, that's the bottom line. We've got to get over this. And we've got to understand what happened. You know, this little book I wrote, I hope it's done something towards that end. So you talk about a little book, but as the editor of the Sunday Times, you are probably one of the best headline writers in the world, and you obviously know what should be on the front page. If you were still the editor of the Sunday Times, what would you put on your front page about your book? What would the key message be to your constituents? <laughs> That's a very difficult question to ask. And, uh, and I wouldn't in any way like to be seen to be reproaching or criticising the current editor of the Sunday Times, who I think is a first-class person. But um, I, I think that right from the beginning I would have taken a more critical line on the type of information that was coming out. I would have worked a lot harder on the science and to understand exactly what's going on. I would have done what I've done, gone into the documentation to see how it was all put together. I would certainly have been supportive of government efforts to take containment measures. That would range from closing of China, which should have been done as Russia did in, in, in the first weeks of January of 2020. They just sealed that border and sent all their Chinese home. They got hammered for it by the liberal establishment for demonizing the Chinese. But if you want to control it, that's one way of doing it. Certainly, as I've said already, 
I have no difficulty with things like masks, sanitizing, social distancing, control of super spreader events. That would make sense to me. The Chinese started doing this after the original SARS outbreak in 2000 because they were caught short, they were caught lying, they got so embarrassed about it, they made a promise to themselves they would never be humiliated again. And so when COVID-19 came along, they took extraordinary reactions. Although they only locked up 11% of their population, not their whole population, but that was perceived by the world as indicating the severity of the outbreak. It was indicating something else, the determination of the Chinese to control this quickly. So anyway, those were things that were coming through. As an editor of the Sunday Times, I would have fully supported containment measures, but not closing down the economy, not the lockdowns. That was catastrophic misjudgment, at, in my view, at the uh, level of, of medicine, of biomedical decision-making, but it was also particularly catastrophic in terms of the, the nature of our economy and our society. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Next, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg about the new response to COVID-19 by U.S. President Joe Biden, who recently appointed Rochelle Walensky to head the country's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. President Biden recently tapped Dr. Rochelle Walensky to be the new leader of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'm just wondering, you know, what do we know about her? What's her background? Sure. Uh, Rochelle Walensky is uh, most recently was chief of infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital, a prestigious hospital in Boston. She's a professor at Harvard and basically has spent a career in infectious disease uh, care and research. Uh, She's done a lot of work on HIV and AIDS and has advised national and international organizations on HIV policy. Um, So she's a, a well-respected and high-profile infectious disease physician. And, you know, before going to CDC, she was actually treating patients uh, with COVID-19 in in the hospital uh, over the past year. You know, what were some of the factors that led the Biden administration to select her for this role? Yeah, it's an interesting choice because she's not someone who's had, um, you know, leadership roles in public health before, um, you know, she hasn't run a city or state health department. She hasn't worked at CDC, but we know from reporting that she came highly recommended by a number of people, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, um, you know, is obviously a, a Biden advisor and top infectious disease official in the U.S. So I think, you know, from, from what we've heard that Fauci's sort of endorsement of Walensky was, uh, an important part of, um, you know, how she was chosen for this position. You know, Dr. Walensky is stepping into the leadership of this agency at a very troubling time. You know, what are some of the big challenges and issues she's going to be facing in her first few weeks in the role? Yeah, I think it's really twofold. First, there's obviously the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to jump into the U.S. response uh, and really shift the response in a different direction with a greater role for the federal government under the Biden administration. Part of what she's confronting is new variants of the virus that 
are emerging that the CDC is trying to monitor and understand. She's also facing the vaccine rollout. You know, so all these sort of things in progress um, operationally that the CDC has to respond to. But the second part of it, um, which is maybe as challenging or more, is that the CDC as an institution has really been diminished over the past year. They were often not at the kind of forefront of the public response in the Trump administration. Their briefings basically ceased very early into the pandemic in the U.S., you know, and there was a lot of reporting about how really political considerations interfered with their operations. And I think so there's been sort of a crisis of um, credibility, of just visibility, really, at the CDC, where this, you know, renowned institution worldwide for uh, public health sort of suffered in some ways during during the response to the pandemic that was so severe in the U.S. We should also mention that, you know, the CDC did make some mistakes in in the response, um, you know, and most notably very early on, there were problems with uh, the test kits used to detect the coronavirus in the U.S. That sort of blindsided the whole country. We didn't have enough testing early on to understand how the virus was spread. And, you know, some people we talked to, including the former director of the CDC under President Obama, have called for, you know, uh, an assessment and accounting for what happened and how that happened. So has Dr. Walensky given an indication about how she might go about trying to get this agency's reputation, particularly with regard to COVID-19 and the rollout in the U.S.? How can she get the CDC back on track? I think what she's said, and, you know, it's consistent with what the Biden administration has said broadly, is that they're going to let, you know, let the science and the facts speak and kind of be able to showcase the work of the career scientists at CDC um, to make sure that those folks and their research are um, getting to the public, that federal messaging around the CDC's guidance is is prominent and, and clear. And, you know, one of the first things she did on the day uh, she took office when Biden was inaugurated was to order a review of existing CDC guidance on COVID-19 and to sort of assess what the agency has put out already and, you know, revise it if, if appropriate. So, you know, that's, um, I think it's, it's too early to kind of have a good sense of exactly what changes we might see, but one of them certainly is, um, you know, just a higher profile for, for the agency broadly. And going forward with that, you know, under the Biden administration, what will be or what can we expect to see as far as the CDC in terms of perhaps new roles or responsibilities that might differ from what we saw the agency doing under, say, the Trump administration? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think, you know, a, a, a big part of it will be that kind of broader public profile for the agency, for the director, for career scientists. You know, there are some specific things that Biden has indicated he wants the CDC to do in the COVID national strategy that the president released early on. 
it, you know, it's supposed to help expand testing with a sort of testing support teams that will work in schools and potentially other settings. It's going to create a testing plan for the federal workforce. It's going to kind of update its guidance and um, help, you know, different uh, stakeholders in industry or in, you know, states or other communities really be able to monitor uh, the spread of COVID and kind of understand when, you know, how to respond if the virus is increasing or kind of really metrics-driven guidance is what they've focused. I think there's also, you know, a big equity component that the agency is taking on in terms of addressing COVID's impact in communities of color or in vulnerable communities. And particularly with the vaccine rollout, um, you know, making sure that those communities are, are being considered and being reached. So, you know, there's a lot on the agency's plate. I think it's still pretty early to understand exactly what role it will take further along in the Biden administration. brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 for this week. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.